Welcome to another episode of Geography Now from the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. We are a charity, learned society and professional body and reach millions of people each year through our work in advancing geography and supporting geographers. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to geographers about the work that they're doing, topics they're passionate about and opinions they have about the world around us. Since 1832, our medals and awards have been presented annually to recognise individuals and organisations for their outstanding contributions to geographical research, fieldwork, teaching and public engagement. In usual circumstances, we would have celebrated our medal and award recipients with a ceremony at the Society in June, where we would have reflected on the work that they had done and commended their achievements. While the ceremony at the Society is not possible at this time, we are still excited about sharing the incredible work of our medal and award recipients. Today's podcast guest is this year's recipient of the Taylor and Francis Award for sustained contributions to teaching and learning in higher education, particularly through the Race Working Group. Dr James Asson is a Senior Lecturer in Human Geography at Loughborough University, as well as head of the RGS IBG Race Working Group's Teaching and Learning Subcommittee. Thank you for joining us today, James. So, can you start by telling us a bit about yourself? So, I'm James Asson. I'm currently a Senior Lecturer in Human Geography at Loughborough University. I started my academic career, I guess you could say academic career, as an undergraduate at Newcastle University. And it was an odd choice, Newcastle. And if I'm honest, I didn't pick it really for kind of pedagogical and research reasons. I, I literally chose it because I went to school with you know, one of my best friends now and he wanted to go to Newcastle. We went and had a look at it. I like the look of Newcastle. And if I'm honest with you, I looked at quite a few universities and it struck me just how white the discipline was. So on most open days, I was literally the only black person looking to do geography. So from the start, I've always been kind of aware of um, my blackness, I guess you could say. But that didn't put me off. Um, I still did geography. And oddly enough, studying at Newcastle really shaped my career in the sense that I was taught by a, a scholar called Alistair Bonnet. I was also taught by Anup Nayak, um, Kate Manzo, Helen Jarvis, Nina Laurie. I could list lots of names. And, and from the beginning, they, were, they made me very aware that some geographers, not all, but some geographers were very aware about the discipline and, and how it become the way it was and why it looked the way it did. So I was able to understand why I was the only black person in the room in many cases, and also not made to feel that I was a problem. So that, that was kind of how I started out in the academies. And I then did a master's at Newcastle as well in transport planning and policy. And then I did my PhD at, at UCL. And I, I guess my PhD topic on football trafficking is something we're going to talk about shortly. Thanks. And so you are this year's recipient of the Taylor and Francis Award. Can you talk about the work that you've done that the award recognised and what you thought of the achievement? Well, it was a nice surprise for sure. It was, it was really nice to be acknowledged in that way by my peers. But it was also a little bit awkward in the sense that it was for my work with the Race Working Group. And that's a collective of people, so I, I can't take credit for that on my own. I do lead on the stuff around teaching and the curriculum, so that might be why I was picked for the award in that sense. But yeah, it was, it was, it was fantastic to be acknowledged and it was, it was a very nice feeling, I'm, I'm not going to lie. But um, yeah, I do feel there's colleagues like, you know, Vandana Desai, David Talia Kelly, Parvati Raghuram, Pat Noxole, Patricia Daly, Margaret Byron. I could go on and on who have done some fantastic work and they should also be recognised. And you'll notice that they were all women. And that's a really important point. I would say that the race group in the RGS, 
There are so many fantastic black women who are doing really, really good work. And it always makes me laugh because I grew up around really strong black women. And I feel like I've got my family in the kind of very literal kind of sense of family, but my kind of geographical family. And I'm surrounded by these really strong and inspiring black women. But I guess to answer your question, it was a fantastic feeling. I also felt a little bit yeah, embarrassed by the fact that I was being singled out in that way, but it was nice nonetheless. And I, I guess for me, what was nice about it is that I hope that it, it kind of puts at the forefront of people's mind issues of kind of racial injustice in society. And racism has always existed in society, but I think there's a heightened awareness of it right now. So I think that the award was quite timely, but I don't think it's one where we should kind of pat ourselves on the back and think that we're doing a really great job. We've done some good work, but there's still plenty more to do. I definitely understand what you said about the other people in the working group. I had the pleasure to interview Pat at last year's conference for a short film segment um, and I was hanging on to her every word. Uh, we were talking about some of the work that she's been doing with transactions. So I definitely echo that 100%. So it's evident you've done quite a lot with your career, even in the early stages. What do you consider to be your biggest achievement so far? I think one achievement, and this is going to sound quite facetious, and I mean it in all seriousness, is actually just to survive and to be in the academy. And I mean that in two ways. The first way is that it's incredibly competitive to be in academia in the UK. I mean, there are so many talented people. So when I think back to when I did my PhD, I was in a room of probably 30 odd students. And, you know, and we're all, I would say, talented in our own ways, all very intelligent but we didn't all make it into the academy. And it wasn't for want of trying or intelligence, it's just it's a very competitive environment. So I'd say one of my achievements is actually kind of making it and still being here to kind of, I guess, to talk to you today. Of course, the Taylor and Francis Award was a really nice achievement. Um, I'd say that's definitely one of the, I think might be the only award I've ever got <laughs> as a scholar, aside from kind of undergraduate stuff. So yeah, that, that was really cool. So that'd have to be up there. But yeah, I think being present in the academy and and being one of the few visibly black presences in the, in the academy is definitely for me an achievement. It's not a role model thing, because I think sometimes people say, oh, we need to have more role models in the academy to encourage people to stay in the discipline. And it's not so much of a role model thing, but as a black scholar, it's, it's incredibly difficult to be in the academy, um, not just in geography, but more broadly. Um, if you think of David Tolia Kelly's paper in Area in 2017, you know, about being a lone black female in the academy. And it's, it's a really powerful, striking piece because you, you hear about all the microaggressions and challenges that people encounter on a daily basis. So I think my presence just being here, for me, is an achievement in of itself. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way at all, but I do feel it's an achievement when you look at the fact that the majority of people in the discipline are white. And that's just the reality of the world that we're living in. But yeah, the Taylor and Francis Award, if I had to be more kind of braggadocious, I don't know if that's the word to use, I'd say, yeah, that would that'd be the one I'd, I'd kind of go for. So you've touched on this briefly already, but your research has brought to my attention a geographical issue I was previously unaware of, the irregular migration of West African males to Europe through football-related human trafficking. So can you talk to us about how you came to research this? So it goes back to 2008, um, where I read an article by a journalist called Dan McDougall in the Observer magazine. And Dan McDougall was talking about the, I think he called it the scandal of Africa's trafficked players. And it was just a fantastic piece. He was talking about young West African boys who are trafficked through football. And I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that in a second. But what really captivated me about this was the fact that he did a lot of his research in Ghana. I was born in Ghana. 
my parents are Ghanaian, I consider myself Ghanaian. I know you find that funny when you hear my voice. <laughs> and when I go to Ghana, people often say that I speak the Queen's English and tease me. But in all seriousness, I do think of myself as a, as a Ghanaian. And what I found interesting was the way he described Ghana wasn't the Ghana that I knew and understood and that I recognised from my time there. And I mean that in the sense that he betrayed the young men, and it was about men, so I use that word intentionally, young men, in quite a naive way. And I guess what I meant by that was, I just felt that there was more to this story than maybe he was picking up on. And also what I found interesting was, and I do this sometimes when I give talks at schools with children about my research, I ask them to close their eyes and to think about someone who's been trafficked and think about who comes to their mind. And often they say to me, it's a woman or it's a child, but they're normally white. And I guess what I found fascinating about this was about young black men who were being trafficked. And I just thought that was an area that wasn't being looked at. And also at that time, I was thinking about doing a PhD. So I read this article and I contacted Patricia Daly at Oxford and I said, oh, I'm thinking of doing this. And she gave me some really good feedback on a proposal. And I eventually ended up going up to UCL to do my PhD. But Patricia Daly really helped me to formulate my idea and to kind of situate it within kind of post-colonial studies and, and stuff on West African migration. So literally I read a news article. And it's a weird thing because my entire career has pretty much come from the fact that I read that random news article and often wonder what would have happened if I hadn't read that article. But I guess fortunately I did. Yeah, it is interesting that sometimes you can have that um, chance encounter. I sort of think the same could be said for my past research. And so I actually had a chance encounter with something that really spoke to me. So I can understand that. So obviously uh, this is a hugely interesting body of research. Um, so what have been your main findings, so from the PhD and the subsequent papers you've produced since then? I guess before I summarise some of the key findings of my research, let me just give people a brief overview of the kind of process that I'm talking about, just so you can get a sense of what I mean. So in reality, there's actually two different processes that potentially take place. So the first one is what we call trafficking in football. So that is where it doesn't have to be a man or a boy. It could be a young girl who plays football, for example. But that's where an individual is recruited by a club and the terms under which they're recruited are exploitative. So they, they sign for a club and they're either given a poor salary, they're treated poorly relative to their peers. Um, so they're exploited in some way. And it doesn't have to involve international migration. You can be trafficked within a country. So human trafficking can happen within borders, but the work I look at tends to look at international migration processes. The second type is what we call trafficking through football, and that's what's actually a lot more common. So that's where an agent would go to a country like Ghana and say to a young boy at a trial, look, if you give me 2,000 euros, I will get you um, a contract to a, a trial at a European football club. The person, often their family find a way to save the money, they get to Europe and there is no trial, there is no contract at the club and the young person gets abandoned. So that's kind of what I'm looking at. And I guess what I wanted to try and find out in my work is why that happens in, in a really basic way. How is it that that person's able to sell that dream to somebody? Actually, the selling the dream is actually quite obvious. We can see why somebody would want to play for a professional football club, but I guess it's to try and understand how they're able to make them part with that money. So I try to understand the structural conditions and context within which that takes place. So I guess in terms of my key findings, what I tried to do with my work was to go back to West African context, and I actually went to Ghana because I'm lazy, and it was easy for me to go to Ghana for lots of reasons, to try and understand that the context within which these decisions are being made. And through doing so, I started to look at the general life experiences of young boys who want to become footballers. And one of the key findings that I find is that many young boys who want to be footballers, and actually young men and young children more generally in Ghana, are losing faith in education as a way to improve their lives. 
And, and all I mean by that is not that they don't believe education is valuable, but in terms of where education will lead them in terms of job opportunities, they're not seeing that connection as much as maybe people did in the past. So they're therefore trying to find other opportunities or ways to improve their life chances. And, and for many young boys, they see football as a way to do that. Now, that's tied up in lots of stuff around what they think black people can do. So there's a reason why they're gravitating towards sports. So there's these kind of discourses around black people as being naturally good at sports. So I don't know if you've come across Adam Rutherford's book about you know, how to argue the racist, where he talks about how lots of these racial ideas become embedded in how we think about sports and things like that. So these young boys are kind of internalising these ideas. I also look at the ways in which societies promote certain ideas can be understood by people, but maybe not in the way that they want them to understand them. So in the Ghanaian context, they've long said that educate yourself as a form of kind of human capital. And through that human capital development, you can then get a job and do other things. And young people are saying, well, actually, I'd rather invest in my human capital in a different way, like through football, for example. So it's interesting how they internalise wider public narratives and beliefs and shift them. I guess that the next key thing that I would probably talk about is that when you look at, for example, the case of trafficked boys in the football industry, and you look at how we respond to that situation in terms of the policy responses, a key finding in my work is that they often try to prevent people from moving. So anti-trafficking um, initiatives often are about keeping people in place. So we can keep you safe by making you not move. And it problematizes migration. So the problem becomes the act of movement as opposed to the wider inequalities in society. So that's one of my key points in my work is that we end up focusing on the wrong things. Movement is not in of itself a bad thing. And the reason why I really emphasise this point in my work is that you see how wider public discourses can seep into other areas of life. So the idea of not moving has coincided with a discourse in society around anti-immigrant. So you see how these things become quite entangled. But I think the big one for me is that one of the reasons why these young boys are so keen to move is they want to improve their life. And they feel that moving to Europe is the way to do that. I'll never forget that when I was speaking to some boys in Paris and they were saying, I said to them, you know, so you're obviously struggling in Paris. They weren't living the most amazing life. And I said, oh, when you tell your family in Cameroon about this, what do they say? And they say, if life is so bad, why don't you come back to Cameroon? And there, you know, there's the thing, right? Because on the one hand, you know, they say to their family, look, I'm really struggling here. They're like, well, if it's so bad in Europe, come back to Cameroon. <laughs> You know, and the boys don't want to go back. So, you know, and it kind of reinforces the idea that Europe is, is the place to be. But again, my key point is that in human trafficking, we need to understand inequality. The structural inequality that often enables someone to manipulate someone and exploit them in the first place. But also the ways in which if we, you know, problematise migration, we spend a lot of time focused on the, the traffickers themselves. We miss that wider social context within which human trafficking emerges. But the final thing I would say is that Actually, two final things. I was fascinated by the ways in which young people's agency ended up working against them. So in one of my recent papers, I talk about the ways in which by showing that they're able to make decisions for themselves and that they're able to have agency and be proactive in life, they're seen as being you know, liars, that you know, they're not vulnerable, they're not really victims. So I look at the way in which a victim in human trafficking has to take a certain form in order for them to be believed. And the danger of that narrative is that as I said before, it kind of hides the wider structural conditions within which people migrate, but also the stereotype of a human trafficking victim can take forms that can be racialized, can be gendered, as we said at the start. So therefore, we don't always help people who are deserving of our help. The final thing I wanted to show in my work is how human trafficking is actually a product of kind of capitalist societies and unequal societies, but how our responses to human trafficking almost make present itself as if that's not the case. So that trafficking exists outside of capitalist social relations. So yeah, those are the kind of key findings from my, my research.
Thank you for sharing that with us. I found what you said about uh, migration versus inequality very interesting. Uh, so I work as part of the events team at the RGS. And right now, as we're recording this, actually, um, we're streaming a repeat of Professor Heaven Crawley's lecture, which is titled Stop Talking About Migration and Start Discussing Inequality. Uh, so definitely something that I myself have been learning about. So I think that our listeners uh, will hopefully get something from that and start thinking about that as well. So as well as uh, football trafficking, you've also focused on decolonisation, race and anti-racism within British geography. And you've also participated in producing some seriously impactful papers. Uh, Can you talk to us about what you've highlighted in these? I hope the papers were impactful. I guess I should always start and preface this by saying that I wouldn't call myself a decolonial scholar. I read a lot of decolonial scholarship and um, I find it really fascinating. But this is actually one of the key points in the work that I've done is that I don't see the decolonial as um, an intellectual exercise only. I'm actually far more interested in the decolonial as a way to create more just societies, especially within the academy, because that's the environment that I'm working in, but society more broadly. And I guess one of the papers that I'm known for in the UK was a commentary about the 2017 conference. I think it's really important for me to say this very publicly that I was a bit disappointed by some of the responses to that paper in in the sense that they tried to personalise it. So they presented it as a group of scholars um, attacking other individuals in the academy. And that was never our intention. What we were trying to hopefully convey to the discipline was that decolonisation and decolonised geographical knowledge is, is potentially a fantastic idea. But we need to think through what we're doing and why we're doing it and who is doing it. Because our concern with the conference and the way that it was presented is that it focused very much on what I would call the epistemological, um, the intellectual inquiry around decolonising geographical knowledges. And what we were trying to say is that we need to look a bit deeper. We need to think about our institutional praxis and how they're structured. Even something as simple as how did that theme even come to be? That process of chair nomination, conference theme selection. We're saying that these processes need to be considered as part of this decolonial imperative. And our concern was that the RGS conference lasts for three days. What's going to be the longer term ramifications of this conference? Are we going to use it as an opportunity to do things differently? And I know we're going to touch on this hopefully later on. I think some things have been done differently. But at the same time, we've also seen examples of where our concerns were proven to be true. So a year later, in Parvati Raghuram, there's something called the Crick Jog mailing list. It's a popular mailing list. I think it goes out to thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of geographers around the world. But there's a very strong British contingent on it. And a few years ago, um, sociologists in the British Sociological Association noted that what we call the Research Excellence Framework is a government scheme under which our research is evaluated, to keep it very crude. And the Sociological Association said that the REF has racist outcomes. It's been shown to do this, and they said they want to do something about it in sociology. And Parvati emailed the mailers and said, look, what are geographers going to do? And nobody replied. And what I find fascinating here is that people have got time to put out their call for papers, they've got time to, you know, make their journal article requests, and they've got time to talk about all manner of things. But on this, they were completely silent. And I guess my point is, how do we go from an, a conference in 2017, when we say we want to decolonise geographical knowledges, and then not respond to poverty in that email? What is going on here? That was our concern, is that, you know, the conference had the potential to make long-standing change in the discipline. And we were just trying to encourage people to, yeah, take that seriously and, and to try and make some real substantive change. And I think one of the reasons why this type of thing happens is that many of the people I come across in geography, I think they're probably nice people. I don't know them on a deeper level, but they seem quite nice. And I think they think of themselves as good people. And there's a danger that people think that I'm not racist enough when actually you need to be anti-racist. 
And that's what we were calling for in the paper to say, look, it's not enough for us to be liberal progressive and say we're not racist. Let's be anti-racist. Let's make a conscious effort to ensure that racism is not present in our discipline as best as we can do. And yeah, be proactive in that space. I think that's what we were kind of calling for. There's other things we were talking about, but I think that's one of the key messages. So I wasn't working at the RGS then and didn't know this paper existed until you sent it over before our talk. So I talked to some of my colleagues about it actually and they were saying that it was quite impactful and it did really make everyone at the time stop and think, why are we doing this? What are we doing? And hopefully as I continue to work at the RGS, I'll continue to see these changes. So can you sort of talk about what changes you want to see and the changes that need to be made? I'm going to focus on learning and teaching because I guess I'm speaking to you in the context of winning the Taylor and Francis Award for my work in the area of learning and teaching. And I don't know if you came across Mona Domosch's article in 2015 called Why is a Geography Curriculum So White? And it was a paper that really um, it stood out for me because it was very, very timely because in the UK we were talking about why is our curriculum so white and why is my professor black? So it was really of the moment. But also, um, Mona Domosch asked some really provocative questions. Of course, that question is of in itself provocative. But, you know, she reflects really critically and talks about, you know, how many of us talk about being anti-colonial, anti-racist, yet we're still teaching and recreating what Mona Domosch called white geographies. And these are geographies that, you know, are, are based on racialized and colonial assumptions about the world. And we don't question them, we, we, we normalise them and we perpetuate them in our learning and teaching. So over the last couple of years, I've tried to respond to that question and to really answer Mona's question, you know, why is our geography curriculum so white? And as part of doing so, I think there are a few recommendations or you know, suggestions that I've been thinking about that I think will be helpful for colleagues and students in geography or British geography to think about. And I guess one of the big ones is around what I just call uncomfortable conversations. I think as a discipline, we need to have some very, very uncomfortable conversations you know, and I'm reminded here of Matani's quote about, you know, we need to look at sites close to home and ask ourselves, why are we sharing with our students how gendered and racialized identities influence who is teaching in geography and why they're teaching in geography? And I think that will lead to some very uncomfortable conversations, especially around legacies of colonialism. And a big one is around whiteness. I'm surprised at how uncomfortable geographers become when we talk about whiteness as a privilege and supremacy, but the reality is that we live in a world where white supremacy is rampant. And we know that now more than ever. We've always known it, but as I said, there's a really heightened awareness of it recently. And I want to be really clear here that we're not talking about skin colour. You know, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, I was really fortunate early in my studies to be taught by Alistair Bonnet and Anup Nayak. And one of the things they taught me that completely blew my mind at the time is that whiteness is not just about your skin, it's about a deeper set of kind of processes and practices that structure our society and that we often take for granted. And I think that geographers have to have that conversation. I'm not saying we've never had it before. I mean, I mentioned Asta Bonnet's work in the, in the 1990s and there's people that were before Asta Bonnet who said the same things. But I think we need to have those conversations really soon and, and, and in a really substantive way. And I would also add to this that there are three things that I would encourage all geography departments in the UK to try and set themselves as objectives. They're quite ambitious objectives and they're quite open-ended. And I, I talk about them in more detail in a forthcoming paper in area with Angela Last I'm at the University of Leicester. And the first one is that we recommend that black staff and students are included in decision-making roles and processes around the creation of pedagogical approaches and curricula. So I'll say that again. We're asking for geography departments in the UK to try and include black staff and students in their teaching programmes when you're designing them, when you're thinking about what assessments to take, 
keep in mind black staff and students, but involve them in the discussions as well. Now, people are going to say to me quite rightly, but James, there's not that many black staff and students in geography. There's a problem in of itself. So we need to start fixing that, right? <laughs> you know, and you know, so that, that's one of them. The next one is that I think that as a, you know, I'm talking about British geography here, I can't speak so much for the US. I think we need to start recognising the histories, the epistemologies, I'm using kind of, you know, the academic language here, um, and ontologies of black people in our learning and teaching. And I mean that in a meaningful way, not in a kind of a tokenistic where you put a few black people on your reading list and think it's job done. Far more substantive engagement with the epistemologies and cultures of, of black people in our curriculum. And I think the last one I've already touched on a few times, but I think it has to be said nonetheless, is that we need to be you know, overtly anti-racist in what we're doing. And through doing so, not to be afraid to take positive action. I think sometimes colleagues are scared to say, okay, I want to, um, in my learning and teaching, really talk about black geographies. There's a really rich body of work emerging on black um, geographies. I'm thinking of, you know, the work of Shabazz, and I'm thinking of the work of Pat Noxolo, and Catherine McKittrick's done some work for a very long time in this area. I think some colleagues are scared to look at black geographies explicitly. There's a nervousness around doing it. And I think that you know, one thing I'd encourage colleagues to do is to be a bit more proactive and to take that positive action and really kind of not treat black geographies as something that is kind of marginal to discipline. But to think, you know, how would geography look if we make blackness central to geography, not a side issue? Now, what would our discipline look like? So, yeah, I think those are some of the areas where I think we could maybe do more. And I know that it's not easy. And it's, what I'm asking is quite open-ended. And some might think it's provocative. I don't think it is actually that provocative to say, let's look at black people. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think that's an outrageous thing to ask us to do in 2020. But yeah, those are a few thoughts on what I think we could do. Again, I think Matani's quote about, you know, look at sites closer to home. So I think as geographers, we're always keen to look at other places. I use other in a very, I mean, in a, in a critical sense, you know, to look elsewhere. But we don't look at sites closer to home at what we're doing. And I think that's one of the things that I think we really need to do now and, and moving forward. Definitely. I would agree with everything you're saying. I think that something that uh, black colleagues and friends have brought to me is that it shouldn't be the responsibility of black individuals to bring these issues to the forefront of our minds. But it should be people like me, like the RGS, like my white colleagues in academia, who have to take it upon themselves to actively be anti-racist and actively engage. It has to be our priority to do something. And I do think people need to be aware of that. So thank you for talking about it. On that point, just to follow up, I think... One of the reasons why the conversations are uncomfortable is because there's an awareness that if you want to make things better, people have to give up certain privileges. Like, that's the reality of the situation. And I think that's where it can become quite uncomfortable for people. And also, when you're teaching about these topics, I mean, I'm not naive. I know that many geographers are in classrooms where the majority of students are white. So to have these conversations can often be fraught with tension. You know, Peter Jackson wrote about this in the 1980s. He did some really great work on teaching about race and racism in the 1980s. He's a scholar that I really look up to and I, I read his work and I'm still amazed by it in 2020 because it's still so relevant. Yeah, these are very uncomfortable conversations and people have to give up their privileges. That's the reality of the situation. But I firmly believe that doing so will lead to a more just society. Because if you create a society where it's built on oppression and inequity, it's not sustainable. And we see that right now with the things that are unfolding. Not just in the US, because I think the US definitely it manifests itself in very violent ways. But it's the everyday racism that people encounter. You know, um, COVID-19 is showing us how, you know, I'll be honest, I'm not a massive fan of the term BME, but I know that people use that in the UK and appreciate it as a way to describe populations. But it's disproportionately killing black people. I use black in the sense of people from Africa, Asian and Caribbean descent. 
For me, the saddest part was, I was reading a few months ago stories about how it's because black people are overweight and they have diabetes. It was amazing the lengths that people were willing to go to just overlook the fact it's about racism. And the, another danger with the way in which COVID-19 has been presented is that it breathes new life into ideas around scientific racism and gives justification to ideas that have long been discredited. I'm sure many of the listeners to this podcast are aware that racial hierarchies are social constructs. You know, they have no basis in biology. And one of the dangers with the ways in which the COVID-19 discourses around race are emerging is that rather than looking at the, the structural conditions in society that create a situation where black people are disproportionately more impacted by coronavirus, there's a danger that we start to link it to biology and scientific forms of racism, which are, are completely inaccurate and, and invalid. So, yeah, that's another one of my concerns about the ways in which it's being portrayed. So I sort of have one final question, which I guess is hopeful. And I guess it's a two part question. So sort of whether you've seen any changes occur already and what you hope the future of geography looks like. Yeah, as I kind of hinted earlier on, I think that the 2017 conference, even though I've raised concerns about why I felt it's problematic, I do feel that the RGS especially heard some of our concerns. And I've seen even really subtle changes, like if you go to the RGS website, there's now a section on EDI, and there's actually a, a clear statement about legacies of colonialism and how that's impacted the RGS and, and how we need to recognise and deal with that history moving forward in a more critical manner. So I'm definitely seeing positive things. But for me, what makes me really positive is that I coordinate a dissertation prize for the Race Working Group, and the quality of dissertations that we see every year is just it's amazing. You know, one of the challenges that I have is having to email people to say that they didn't win that prize. And I always try and find a way to tell them just how amazing that work was, because I promise you in pretty much every case I've come across, the work was fantastic, you know, and the bar is so high. And the reason why that makes me hopeful is that in many cases, these are work being produced by young black geographers. And I just think it's fantastic. There's so many good young black geographers around. And my hope is that they stay in the academy. They're able to do their masters, their PhDs, get that research post or a lectureship and, that, and, and kind of they go from there and it makes me really hopeful and you know there's a part of me that also sometimes does worry that you know I don't want young black geographers to think all they have to do is look at is race and racism but I, I think it's important that you know black geographers are able to look at whatever they want to do so that's the only thing I would say is I hope that they are able to do and I'm sure they are looking at a range of, of topics and it reminds me of I went to a talk in Sheffield and I, I forgot the name of the colleague who raised this point but he said that in his teaching in America he teaches in a predominantly black environment. He often says to his students as an exercise, if racism didn't exist, what would you do? What would you want to be in life? What would you do? And he says he does it as a thought experiment to try and teach them, that if, not that racism doesn't exist, but at the same time, don't let it debilitate you and stop you from you know, doing what you want to try and achieve. So yeah, I, I guess I'm hopeful that I'm seeing lots of fantastic dissertations from young black scholars, which gives me real hope that in the future there's going to be a lot more scholars of colour in the discipline. And I'm also hopeful because the last few months have shown me that there are lots of white colleagues who get it. They're not saying that they're perfect, they're not saying that um, they're going to change the world on their own overnight, but they show me that they get it. And that also makes me hopeful because exactly what you said earlier on, in order for us to make change, it's got to be, if I'm honest, white people in the geography world who need to also really, really push things. Because one thing the race work group has found quite difficult is they're actually we're quite a small collective and we're, we're often asked to do a lot of work and pulled in lots of different directions. So yeah, I think I'm also hopeful because I've seen lots of white British geographers who are saying, look, enough is enough, this isn't right and we need to do things better. So that also makes me really, really hopeful. 
Thank you so much. And hopefully we will see that within British Geography. It was a pleasure to have you, James. If you liked this podcast, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at rgs underscore ibg for more updates about geographical talks and news. Thank you for listening in.